0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: The House and Senate are working to reconcile two bills that would, in part, move along the cause of cybersecurity in the United States. Both bills, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act and the America Competes Act, passed the Senate and House, respectively. For some of the good potential fallout, we turn to the senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery. Admiral Montgomery, good to have you back.
0: Real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: And we should also point out that you are deeply involved with the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission, and this is something that has done its reports and so forth. Just before we start, what is the status of, of that commission these days?
0: Thanks for asking, Tom. The commission sunsetted uh, at the end of uh, last year, but the four congressional commissioners and the five remaining non-congressional commissioners, so that's Senator Sass, Senator King, Representative Langevin, Representative Gallagher, wanted to Continue to draw, shine a light on some of the issues that we had, we had developed. So we set up a 501c3 to continue to discuss cybersecurity policy recommendations that need to either get through Congress or get through the executive branch to more solidly protect our critical infrastructure. You know, as if by magic, the Russian threats to our cyber infrastructure that have come two months later are proof that we that we now know we need to continue to keep the pressure on and keep our critical infrastructure more secure.
1: And Representative Langevin is leaving Congress. Will he still stay active in this field since he's been such a great spokesman for cyber as part of the nonprofit?
0: No, I, I think he will in a number of ways, and and I think he will through us. Um, you know, he's got one more good – I try not to think about this because he has one more good legislative cycle in him. I'm hoping he's got a lot of silver bullets out there and we can get a lot done. But uh, you know, he spent the last 20 years in Congress is really the singular – cybersecurity legislative guru. And so uh, I don't think he can walk away from all that experience and all that knowledge. So my suspicion is he'll continue to play a pretty significant role in cybersecurity legislation over the rest of the decade.
1: And he can get a better lobster roll in Rhode Island than he can in Washington. So there's that. But let's get to these two bills, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act and the America Competes Act, both passed this reconciliation If they can do it, what do you think will be the benefits in terms of cyber?
0: I think for, you know, the first and foremost, I I do think getting, you know, the both bills have a pretty clean $52 billion, essentially the CHIPS Act, you know, establishing a grant program to support domestic semiconductor production. Um, So I think that'll get done. You know, that's not a direct impact on cybersecurity, but it has a lot to do with developing a secure supply chain. So I'll set that aside for one second and say, well, that's a big part. Cybersecurity is is embedded in, a, in, a, in nearly a dozen small provisions in there. You know, both bills seek to, you know, rectify dramatic shortages in the federal cybersecurity workforce. They invest in STEM education. Uh, they both create rotational cybersecurity positions for federal employees. One dear to, near and dear to my heart, the House bill, Um, expands appropriately a program called Cybercore Scholarship for Service. That's a critical ROTC-like program for the workforce. And uh, it was created about 23 years ago, and um, it's expanded out to about 500 students a year. It really needs to be about 1,000 students a year to meet the kind of federal demand for people with with this kind of skill set, a cybersecurity degree, yeah, uh, you know, from a um, a two-year, four-year college. In the workforce area, if these bills get complete, uh, you know, if these provisions are pulled through in the conference into the final bill, we will actually have made a significant impact on the federal cybersecurity workforce. And believe me, you don't get to say that in a positive way too often over the last two decades. If I could mention uh, one other area, that the Senate bill has a very important provision on codifying a national risk management cycle. This is a critical recommendation from the um, Cyberspace Solarium Commission. We actually have to look at the risk as it's aggregated across all the sectors, energy, finance, telecommunications, water, et cetera. That we passed in a law last year uh, in in codifying the sector risk management agencies. But we also have to make sure that CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, at the Department of Homeland Security, who's kind of that, you know, the quarterback of the team, so to speak, for federal cooperation with the private sector, has the right authorities and structures and planning cycles to aggregate all this risk across the sectors and understand what the national risk is. What are those places where we have to place investments or we have to require certain expectations from the private sector in order to ensure that we can you know, prevent or if it happens, rapidly respond from a significant cybersecurity event.
1: We're speaking with retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and former advisor to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. And that point about codifying in law the agencies that correspond to the critical infrastructure, that really completes something started almost 20 years ago with the establishment of DHS and the corresponding sectors but it's always been a policy then not something in law yeah
0: you know, you're absolutely right in fact i worked at the nsc in 1999 to 2001 on counterterrorism and critical infrastructure protection and we wrote a presidential decision directive 63 then a national infrastructure assurance i remember plan, it well slightly pre-9 11 you know saying hey we need i think at the time we identified eight sectors now it's up to 60 this is the government we have to obviously grow it's up to 16 or probably 17 or 18 and in fairness I understand why there are 16 sectors, you know, some things we hadn't thought about back then that that have become integrated into our network, you know, and therefore cybersecurity vulnerable. But you're right. Here's the other problem. 23 years ago, we said this is the level of support the government should be giving these companies. This is the expected cybersecurity the government should be um, expecting back. We talked about that compact between the public and private sectors. Twenty three years later, the government has not done a good job making Threat information, threat signatures, adversary tactics, techniques and procedures easily available at kind of the speed of data to the private sector companies that are the targets of these cybersecurity attacks by and large. So as much as we can criticize businesses for not making the appropriate level of investment in cybersecurity with some obvious exceptions, particularly the, the large u s banks um, are in pretty good shape, as much as we can criticize the business sector for that, we also have to remember that in the government we haven 't held up our side of the bar- bargain either and, and I think we 're at that point now where you know we can't it, this, it is no longer uh, in the national security interest to continue to stumble along
1: in other words, the government really doesn 't have a good i guess you 'd call it situational awareness. Of the cyber picture of the nation,
0: I think that we have a incomplete picture. We have a pretty good picture, obviously, on the dot mil, uh, what's going on with military networks, maybe the intelligence communities, and some select private sector ones where we've established relationships. Uh, but the vast, broad majority of what you'd call the attack, the attack infrastructure, where the adversary might come at you, no, we don't have an appropriate picture.
1: And I wanted to get back to that supply chain question and the indirect effect on security there with the $52 billion for the semiconductor industry, just, I guess, rhetorically, but how did the country get to the point where a nation that invented the transistor and then invented Silicon Valley was actually Silicon Valley and not Code Valley? We had a robust, world-leading semiconductor industry. We lost memory, but we had everything else. How do we get to the point where we're subsidizing it now?
0: I first I'd want to acknowledge that we still are the leaders in the entrepreneurial development of software. You know, I, I, more than fifty percent of of the software startups around the world that that have value uh, come from the United States. Another twenty five percent probably from our close partners in Israel, and those companies tend to come over here and the, the successful ones that that can scale and become part of the U.S. kind of ecosystem. So. We're doing really well in that kind of software um, investment. and, and uh, But the other flip side of the story is which you mentioned, which was, you know, if you go back 25 years ago, we had that same dominant position in IT hardware development. And that has, by and large, migrated out of the United States. There, there's a, am sure there's a number of books written on this. And I imagine some of the reasons to be given are along the lines of this was a harder sell to venture capitalists. You give me your money and instead of waiting like a year to see if, I'm, if I start to become successful and then you give me another seed, another round and another round, let's wait about three and a half years between rounds and come back. And I just, I don't know if we necessarily had the right patience. When a lot of this was slipping overseas from 2003 to 2012, I'm not sure we assessed um, where it was going as placing us at risk. And I'll, I'll say explicitly, I don't think... This um, development happening in Japan or Korea or Taiwan or uh, some other Southeast Asian countries necessarily puts us at risk. Happening in China puts us at risk. And, and not everything being done in China puts us at risk. I'm happy to get my my sneakers from China. Uh, I'm not happy to get any uh, microchips or electronic gear um, that goes into my long-range anti-ship cruise missile from China. So I'm going to separate those sure. two. But, but in that context, I think we allow this to slip overseas And um, and then at the same time, the cost of these units became exorbitant. So you let something slip. And in the case of the microchip, uh, the foundries, the price became exorbitant. And now to reshore it, you know, it kind of brings you to a bended knee.
1: Well, we'll see if uh, Congress goes through with that. And then maybe we get some of those plants back. They're quieter than Bitcoin mining farms anyway, and probably better (laughs) neighbors for people. They do use a lot of water. Retired Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery, a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies and former advisor to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, as always, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Hey, thank you very much, Tom. It's been a real pleasure.
1: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy.
3: Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely.